Welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host. I am the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. As usual, in the middle section of the podcast, I interview a fund manager. At the end of the podcast is a fund idea from one of Interactive Investor's fund analysts. But for the first part of the podcast, I am, as usual, joined by Tom. That's Tom Bailey the ETFs editor at Interactive Investor, to chat through a couple of news items. We're going to start off with Scottish Mortgage. Earlier this year, there were a number of headlines and stories written about Scottish Mortgage because the trust was caught up in the wider technology sell-off that was taking place at the time. From mid-February to early March, its share price had fallen by 30%, It had fallen from a record high of 1,145 pence to a low point of 950 pence per share. Over the past couple of months, that share price has been clawing back those losses and it is now currently within touching distance of its record high. A positive driver of late for Scottish Mortgage has been a pickup in performance of China's best-known technology shares, Tom, the index that that tracks uh, Hong Kong's leading tech stocks rebounded strongly last week. Is this a sign of investors attempting to buy the dip? Yeah, so I mean, since the sell-off really accelerated in July uh, among Chinese tech stocks, you saw a lot of talk of buying a dip and you you could see some uh, some fun flow data suggesting investors doing this and um, also kind of different different uh data points about number of buyers of, of particular ETF or ETFs or funds or particularly on, on, on our platform as well, which we published some stories on. Um but uh, over the last kind of week or, or so, last few weeks, you've seen um kind of some big institutional investors kind of come back towards Chinese stocks um and, and start buying them on a basis they might they there might be a, a bit of a bargain now after after this large sell off. So notably you had ARC um which runs the big active ETFs in the US uh, buying and it was quite significant because they had actually sold out um, kind of during the, during the early days of the big of the big China tech sell-off. Um, and also you had BlackRock um, kind of noting noting valuations there and, and buying up Chinese stocks. Um, but it's worth noting also though that um, kind of beside all the negative headlines about the tech crackdown in China that's obviously been, been very harmful to, to share prices, a lot of the Chinese tech companies kind of caught up in this have uh, recently reported fairly good earnings. So of course the you know the markets factor in all these different things. So of course the political risks are weighing on on Chinese tech valuations, but they're still producing strong financial results, which which won't go unnoticed by by investors. But of course political risk is still there. So uh, notably over the weekend we heard about the Chinese government's new policy that children in China can only play online video games between eight and nine p.m. on Fridays, weekends, and public holidays. So obviously, this this is not potentially good news for some of China's big uh, tech companies, which are which are heavily involved in the online gaming gaming space. Um, so you saw the price of Tencent and NetEase initially fall on the back of this. Uh, and Tencent's uh, time of talking recovered somewhat, um, but either way, for for many kind of investors and observers of China, this this latest move again will just be indicative of the kind of unpredictable political risk and and, and constant uncertainty uncertainty surrounding China, and kind of clearly. Something's going on in China. Something's changed there, and and many investors are kind of recalculating still how much uh, how much risk they're willing to assume in that, in that regard. Moving on to a broader part of the market that has, that has also been staging its own recovery has been a global dividends. 
Um, global dividends for the second quarter of this year were up 26.3% year on year on a headline basis. The headline basis includes special dividend payments. On an underlying basis, uh, dividends rose by 11.2%, and those figures are from the latest edition of the Janice Henderson Global Dividend Index. The index shows that the dividend recovery has been widespread. In total, um, 84% of companies either increased the dividends or held them steady in the second quarter of this year. Tom, what were the other key takeaways from the report? Sure. So, I mean, one of the first ones which you kind of would expect is the recovery in dividends has has been largely driven by um, miners and and commodity producers. So, uh, obviously, uh, since the start of the year, uh, or really since November uh, last year, when we had the vaccine announcements, the price of commodities has picked up steadily, strongly, um, as economic expectations are picked up. And so a lot of companies like Rio Tinto have, have you know, increased their uh, special dividends to shareholders. Um, so that's played a big role in, in the recovery of payments. Um, but you've also seen financials make a comeback. Um, if you remember last year, there was restrictions put on many financials um, on, on dividend payments. Um, those, those restrictions are going away now. Um, so you've, you've kind of you've seen the, the kind of value recovery stocks actually also be the big contributors to, to this uh, this. Um, pick up in, in payments. Um, but there's, there's also a wider point which will be encouraging for, for income investors. So again, if you remember last year, there's lots of talk about the dividend drought and speculation of how long it will take for payments to recover. All kind of historic data marshaled to show how, how much longer it can take for for uh, dividend payments to recover when they fall during a recession. Well, see now the good news from this report um, is that Janus Henderson says it expects global dividend payments to regain to their pre-pandemic levels within the next 12 months. So it's a lot shorter time frame than many had expected at this time last year. That's a real positive sign for income investors. Uh, and as you mentioned, Tom, yeah, as prior to the um, successful rollouts of the vaccines, the consensus view was that it would take a couple of years for dividends to return to pre-pandemic levels. I think for the UK market, this still rings true. Um, the latest forecast from Link Group says that it'll take until 2025 until UK dividends are back at their pre-pandemic levels. And a key reason why is because a number of the big income payers in the FTSE 100 index had been paying more in dividends than they could afford to prior to COVID-19 coming along. So therefore, they've t- they've took the opportunity to reset their dividends um, in, in the middle of the pandemic to more sustainable levels. Not everyone is optimistic, however, um, in terms of it on a global scale. Bruce Stout, who's the manager of the Murray International Investment Trust, recently said that what he's been seeing is um, numerous companies remaining very cautious when it came to returning improving cash flows to shareholders. And as a result, um, Stout said that he thinks that the path to income recovery may take much longer for certain economic sectors and businesses this time around. The final news piece that we're going to cover is a rare case of a fund manager warning investors to think carefully about buying the investment trust he manages at its current valuation. Uh, Michael Linzel, the co-founder of the fund management firm Linzel Train Limited, alongside Nick Train, cautioned investors over the high premium that the Linzel Train Investment Trust is trading at. The premium is currently just over 30%. This is much higher than its 12-month average premium figure of 15.4%. 
Now, the Trust persistently commands a high premium, and this is largely because of its largest holding, the full management business, Lindsell Train Limited. It's a big position in the Trust, representing 46% of its assets. So, so basically, investors see the high premium as, as worth paying because they think the, uh, the unquoted fund management company, um, Lindsell Train, is, is basically undervalued by the trust. So it's kind of, it seems like a proxy for investor attitudes towards the whole Lindsell Train style of investing. Yes, that's spot on, Tom. And the, the assumption that the fund management business is undervalued is therefore rooted in its future success with the expectation that assets under management for the full management company will rise from here. So investors buying um, for this reason are banking on Lindsell Train's funds and investment trusts continuing to prove successful in order to retain its investor base and also to uh, to attract new investors. Uh, investors are also um, banking on there not being a substantial stock market correction. Uh, there's only 14 holdings in the investment trust. So the trust share price does look vulnerable in a falling market and arguably even more vulnerable due to the high premium that it's currently trading at. Michael Linzel, um, he, he cautioned against those investors who think the trust has undervalued the full management business, Linzel Train Limited. He said, we caution this opinion and think the trust board of directors do a good job of valuing the shares given the information at their disposal and their deep knowledge of the company as a long-standing significant minority investor. And he also concluded by pointing out that um, buying shares in the trust at a premium could lead to a significant loss if stock markets fall and or Lindsell Trains Limited's funds under management decline. For our full manager interview, I'm joined by Charles Haney, who is one of the co-managers on the Leg Mason IF Clearbridge Global Infrastructure Income Fund. So Charles, to start off, could you briefly run through how the fund invests? So key to our philosophy is to take a long-dated private markets approach to assessing infrastructure assets and to execute those views in the listed market. Our team are infrastructure specialists, first and foremost. The investment committee has been managing money together for many, many years. Our approach is one of collaboration, peer review and challenge, all in one office with PMs, you know, working alongside, guiding and testing the assumptions of our analysts, all designed to enhance issue discovery. We have a large team and this allows us to spend more time understanding the longer term drivers of cash flow, dividends and also to model the different valuation scenarios to frame a likely range of outcomes. There are probably four critical areas that really differentiate our process from our peers and have enabled repeatable results for our investors um, for well over a decade. You know, firstly, we have a proprietary investment universe and that identifies core infrastructure companies and opportunities which aren't really well researched by, by other managers. Secondly, our fundamental analysis assesses both the return profile and the risk profile of assets. And that allows us to build risk-adjusted returns um, for investors. Now, third, the integration of ESG into both the cash flow analysis and the hurdle rate allows us to quantify ESG-related risk, but most importantly, ESG-related opportunities. 
And finally, you know, we have a benchmark underwear portfolio construction. So that gives us the freedom to capitalize on all those advantages and to manage through different cycles. Again, resulting in a, in a superior risk return outcome for our clients. The fund has two primary objectives. The first is to generate reliable income. And the second is to deliver capital growth above the level of inflation over five years. Are both those objectives currently being met? They certainly are. And they have been consistently met um, for well over a decade now. The, the fund is designed to give investors access not only to those to those wonderful infrastructure characteristics, you know, inflation pass-through, resilient cash flows, dividends and downside. Um, you are correct. It's designed to give a, a very attractive total return and a total return underpinned by a target 5% dividend yield. And that's something we have a you know, razor-sharp focus on when building our portfolios. So what are the main sectors that you invest in and what sectors are you currently favoring and are less keen on at present? I want to start by more broadly talking about the opportunity. And we do think we're on the cusp of a really significant opportunity in listed infrastructure. You know, there is no doubt the sector has extraordinary public policy support. And in the near term, as economies are stimulated to recover, to recover from the pandemic, and in the medium to longer term, um, as countries move to decarbonize and mitigate the effects of climate change. Now, what does this mean? It means massive grid investment and large-scale utilities are right of a centerpiece of that investment. And that's right in the sweet spot of the core infrastructure that is listed and the, the infrastructure that we give our investors exposure to. And the amount that needs to be invested is huge. So this is a tailwind which will underpin investment in and growth of asset bases for many, many years. And it's that link between asset-based growth and compounding returns, which drives the very high nominal equity returns we've achieved, but more importantly, the, the strong dividend and dividend growth outcomes we've achieved. So our focus has always been on regulated assets and user pays assets. Historically, you know, the bias has been to those more defensive sectors, you know, utilities and renewables. But in portfolio construction, we always aim to balance the duration of catalysts in the portfolio. And as a result, you know, we're currently probably a bit more balanced in our allocation. We have close to 25% of the portfolio in infrastructure assets, so toll roads, passenger rail and airports, you know, companies like GetLink, which owns the tunnel between the UK and France, a critical piece of transport infrastructure with a long data concession, you know, expires in 2086. You know, the tunnel provides an essential and efficient link between the UK and France. You know, pre-COVID in 2019, facilitated over 26% of, of, of UK EU trade flows with over 11 million passengers riding on the Eurostar's high-speed rail service. You know, strong structural advantage over ferries and airlines, speed, reliability, frequency of service, you know, comfort. Um, and that's that's all sort of significant market share gains and strong pricing power. You know, our view is that that will all continue once borders reopen. And then you think about, you know, the lower carbon footprints of, of, of a, a rail service compared to, you know, air, tra air transport and ferries. So a very unique opportunity. You know, electric utilities have always been an important sector allocation, very high quality companies with strong asset based growth, very healthy dividends and dividend growth. And as, as I said earlier, you know, it's those companies that have a key role in the move towards decarbonization and net zero. We also focus on companies with, you know, idiosyncratic drivers, They're companies like PEG, Exelon, Southern in the US, exceptional stocks with strong catalysts, you know, companies like Scottish and Southern, you know, also starting to be, you know, a good stock specific opportunity, you know, rumors of a prominent active shareholder, you know, may result in, you know, a further extraction of value from the business. Companies like Enbridge, 
you know, uh, that has a large de-risking event later in the year as they complete, you know, pipeline replacement projects. So these are the type of companies that we're favoring in the moment. On the on the companies um, potentially that, you know, that we're looking at and looking at very closely, um, but not there yet, airports in particular. Now, a view on airports has always been the likely range of outcomes um, is quite significant. And, you know, as we emerge from a, a COVID world, you know, we're not sure yet if there's going to be structural reductions in air travel. And what, what does that mean for cash flows, dividend and dividend growth? So whilst valuations are compelling, you know, enthusiasm is tempered by some of those risks. The fund has a yield of over 6%. Last year, there were scores of companies cutting dividends in response to the pandemic. How did the infrastructure sector fare? The sector performed very well um, from both the total return point of view and a dividend point of view. You know, think about regular utilities. Um, they had limited to no exposure. You know, there's mechanisms and regulation um, which allowed them to claw back any exposure. So what we saw was minimal change in cash flows and dividends. The same for renewable or contracting renewable energy assets. You know, due to their long-term contracting structure, these assets had also minimal exposure. The focus for us was more about the impact of supply chains and how that may impact growth and capital deployment in those companies. US tower companies, no impact. You know, the demand for data went through the roof um, during COVID and continues to, to rise exponentially. Um, we did see impact though in, in some of the user pays assets, toll roads, airports, and rail assets. You know, toll roads, roads were heavily impacted early in the lockdowns, but volumes have recovered fast as domestic economies have moved back to some sort of normality. Um, you know, as lockdowns have lifted, you know, car and track traffic have quickly resumed back to pre-COVID levels in some cases. The same as passenger rail and freight rail, where we've seen sort of a, a quick increase in, 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 in volumes. As I said earlier, airports globally is where we saw a significant impact um, on cash flows and dividends. You know, passenger volumes were down up to 90% across most airports. We have recently seen volumes pick up, but as I said, there's still a substantial amount of, of, of uncertainty as it relates to air travel, um, weather mobility is structurally impaired. Um, certainly domestic travel and travel within regions may be viewed as safer and, and quicker um, to resume a long-haul international travel, but there was a significant impact on those yet to be recovered. Listed infrastructure is considered a good option as an inflation hedge. How much of the funds has exposure in percentage terms to inflation-linked revenue streams? And secondly, what's your outlook for inflation? Do you expect higher inflation to be temporary, which is the base case of both the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England? Or is higher inflation here to stay for longer than policymakers are forecasting? So the, the portfolio currently has over 90% direct and indirect pass-through of inflation. And that's one of the reasons you, you buy infrastructure assets, that there's mechanisms in, in regulation or concession agreements which allow inflation to be passed through. And so that's, that's very important. Um, you think about um, a utility, rising inflation or rates um, will have little impact on valuations as inflation you know, is passed through directly or indirectly to the user of that asset. Now, regulation can differ um, globally, very, very small technical differences, but in essence, regulation is designed to protect 
the return utilities receive for capital investment against those macroeconomic changes, especially inflation. And transport infrastructure is no different. You know, think about the impact of inflation on a toll road. You know, the right to operate toll roads are typically granted under concession agreements, which have a finite life. And those agreements define all the parameters under which toll road operates. And in most cases, stipulates how toll prices are increased. And toll prices are linked to inflation. So user pays assets, typically say cash flows increase if there's a cyclical upswing in inflation. So an important protector against value. Now, our outlook for inflation is that we think it's going to continue to be sticky and potentially longer than market essential banks currently expect. Um, but we do think over the medium to long term that productivity growth and other drivers will put a ceiling on how high inflation can be. What we are watching, however, though, is climate inflation in the medium term. And we think it's probably a bit underestimated as companies and countries move to start to factor in carbon costs, you know, mandated in the EU starting 2025 and higher energy costs related to clean energy. Um, there may be a bit more structural inflation related to climate inflation. And finally, a question that we ask all our guests. Do you personally invest in the fund that you manage, the Leg Mason IF Clearbridge Global Infrastructure Income Fund? I certainly do. You know, it's um, uh, one of the, the largest positions in um, as a portion of my personal wealth. And I have great conviction of the asset class. It's an asset class I've been involved in now for over 25 years. And I must say that at this point, the tailwinds that I see as it relates to asset-based growth, mobility, what that means for cash flows, dividends, dividend growth, it's all very exciting. And we think that, you know, there's a long path for significant total return and significant um, dividend and dividend growth. Charles, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. The final part of the podcast is our Fund Spotlight feature. I'm joined by Liberty Godfrey, Fund Analyst at Interactive Investor. So Liberty, what have you chosen for this episode? So I've chosen Brown Advisory US Sustainable Growth which invests in a concentrated portfolio of companies that they believe offer durable fundamental strengths, sustainable competitive advantages, and compelling valuations. Since the fund launched in April 2017, it's grown to a size of around £3 billion. It's benchmarked against the Russell 1000 Growth Index and sits within the IA North America sector. Although this fund is relatively new, the management group has followed this fund strategy since December 2009. Also, the fund is managed by highly experienced managers, Karina Funk, Head of Sustainable Investing at Brown Advisory, and David Powell, who have managed the fund since inception. And how does the fund invest and what is the ethical process? So the investment process aims to identify fundamental drivers of earnings growth, including core competitive advantages of the business model and business strength market opportunity. It excludes companies that defy the United Nations global compact principles, which are a set of values that businesses should adopt for human rights, labor, the environment and anti-corruption. The fund also excludes companies that derive revenues from controversial weapons, conduct non-medical animal testing or generate power from fossil fuels. And it also imposes limits on companies that derive more than 5% of revenues from tobacco, alcohol, gambling and military equipment. And what areas is the fund currently favouring? And could you give some share examples? Well, the fund is made up of primarily larger companies, 
invests in companies with a market cap of over $2 billion at the time of purchase. It has a focused portfolio of 34 stocks where investments have meaningful impact on the performance of the fund. The largest sector exposures include information technology, healthcare, and consumer discretionary. The top three holdings are US giants, Microsoft, Amazon, and Alphabet. And other top holdings include Visa, a multinational financial services corporation, United Health Group, a multinational managed healthcare and insurance company, and American Tower Corporation, a global provider of wireless communications infrastructure and next generation wireless technologies. And finally, how does the fund stand out from the crowd? Well, Brown Advisory US Sustainable Growth features on the ACE 40 as a US equity core recommendation. It also sits within the ACE considers category, meaning it carefully considers a wide range of ESG issues or themes when balancing positive and negative factors. It's managed by highly experienced managers and wider team at Brown Advisory, and the fund has shown to be resilient over the recent difficult period. In addition to this, the ethical process within the fund allows investors to be mindful of ethical issues while gaining exposure to US companies. That's all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. And if that is the case, then please do give us a like, tell your friends and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Of course, there's lots more investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 